before we start, um, Jan, before we start, do you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Just checking. Actually, it was a toss-up when um, when Sean was going to be baptized, whether Bill was going to do it or I was going to do it. But Bill was afraid that instead of baptizing him, I would drown him. We're going to be in 1 John again. We've been in 1 John a couple of times in the past. And um, if you remember, John is writing this letter to various churches in what was called Asia Minor at the time, this modern-day Turkey and surrounding areas there. And um, John's an older man now, the last of the apostles, and he is writing to these people about the love of God, about the word of God, and he's also writing to these people because they're facing a lot of heretical teaching. And he is telling them who these teachers are and to beware of them, not to listen to them, that they will lead them astray. And so John is again and again calling them back to the word of God, calling them back to trust in Jesus and not to believe these apostates, these people that professed at one time to be a part of the church but proved by their actions that they were not ever a part of the church. You know, at the end of the first chapter, John gave three false claims of the heretics. And each one of these false claims were introduced by the phrase, if we say that we have. And then the response of John was, but if we. And his purpose in these tests is to show who are the genuine Christians and how to discern the genuine from the false. Mm -hmm. And the first test that he gave was actually a moral test. And the moral test is a test of obedience. Are you going to obey the word of God? Or are you just going to say that you believe it, but your behavior shows that you don't? So it's a moral test. If a person's words are contradicted by his behavior, John says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3, and 4, which we looked at last time as part of the first half of that chapter, says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's pretty plain, isn't it? You don't have to guess what he's trying to say. 
And then the second test, the first test is a moral test, a test of obedience. The second test that he gives is a social test. It's a test of love. And he says, whoever <clears throat> says that he's in the light and he hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It's the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room as they were leaving before they went to the garden. Jesus said that you love one another as I have loved you. And so that's the second test. It's a test of love. And now, in this second half of the second chapter of first john he gives the third test and the third test is a doctrinal test and let's read if we can verses 18 through 21 of the second chapter of first john Eighteen through twenty-one reads, "Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out." so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing of the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. <clears throat> the words, the last hour, does not mean the end of the world, but it means a period of suffering and struggle that's going to precede the last days, the last time when the victory of Jesus is comes to a climax. They're the forerunners. Well, then, excuse me. I'm losing my place here. These last days are marked by the appearances of many what John calls antichrists. They're the forerunners of the final last antichrist, the chief antichrist that's coming. But in this last days, and the last days actually start at the time of Jesus and continue until Jesus comes again. And during this period of time, John says there are going to be many antichrists. And the word antichrist can mean a couple of things. It can mean, it can mean those that uh, come instead of Christ, a lying pretender that a substitute Christ, or it can mean someone that's against Christ. And most of the early fathers took it to mean someone that was against Christ. But in this context, I think it can mean both of these things. Someone that's against Christ, 
and someone that pretends to be a substitute Christ. And the many antichrists that have come are identified by John as these human teachers that are teaching false doctrine that leave the church mm. and spread their false doctrine wherever they go. He says in <coughs> chapter 4, the first verse says, <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. If we read what Jesus says in Mark, he says, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So Jesus warns about Antichrist, and John is echoing that because he's in the midst of facing this probably on a daily basis. <clears throat> These Antichrists that he was talking about are false teachers who have left the churches that John is representing. And you'll see these different churches in the book of Revelation where he sends these letters to the different churches like Ephesus and Pergamos and the church of Philadelphia. These are all churches in sort of a circle area around the area of Turkey. And John is sort of the, um, the senior um, beloved apostle who is the revered teacher of these churches. <coughs> and he makes a sharp distinction between the they who have left the church and the we that remain in the church. And by leaving, they show their true character. John says they were not of us. The Greek meaning is false teachers, antichrist, John calls them, going out from true, true believers in the sense that they departed doctrinally. Their doctrine was different. And their doctrine was different as to the person of Christ, as to who is Jesus. Of course, John says he's the Son of God. He's one with the Father. He's just like the Father. And these people that were giving a false doctrine were saying, no, he's different. He's not like the Father. He's something different. And John says they were not of us. They were false Christ's. <coughs> They departed because their doctrine was distinctly different from what you've heard from the beginning. They once held the correct position. At least they held it by what came out of their mouth. But in their hearts, they never held the right doctrine. And you find this in the church today. People say the right thing with their mouth, but their hearts have never been changed. They're where they've always been. And eventually it comes out because behavior <coughs> will never line up with the words if the heart has not been regenerated. These people just posed as Christians. It suited them at the time to be a part of the fellowship, but they were really, really never part of the fellowship. John says if they had been, they would have stayed. 
but they went out and they went out voluntarily and they left because they were spouting a false doctrine and John says that the reason that they left was so that it would be made plain to we that remained that they were never a part of it. The Amplified Translation from Kenneth West, who is a Greek scholar, and what he does when he translates this is he adds words to it to make it more to make it more plain. He gives more adjectives to it so that it makes a it gives more clarity to what the original says. And what he read, how he reads from him is like this. Out from us, they departed, but they did not belong to us as a source. For if they had belonged to us, they would in that case have remained with us. But they departed in order that it might be plainly recognized that all do not belong to us as a source. Okay. Thank you. Again, verse 20 reads, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. People that believe are anointed by the Holy Spirit. And as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they have an ability to know the truth of God. The Antichrist, on the other hand, are unsaved. They do not have the Holy Spirit. And they don't have the ability to know the truth of God. So, the ability to know the truth gives you the ability to detect error. Because if you know the truth, and this is an end, knowing the truth means you're spending time in the Word of God, which mm -hmm. is truth. You have the Holy Spirit, who's the Spirit of truth. And if you abide in these things, if you remain in these things, if you continue in these things, then you can detect error. You have the ability to detect error, to know error when you hear it. <clears throat> They're heretics, mostly Gnostics in this case, claimed that they had an, an enlightened ability to know the truth. They were a small group, and you had to be taught by them in order to be a part <laughs> of their group, and they trained you in this hidden secret knowledge. John, on the other hand, says all things. All people that believe have the same knowledge because they have the same Holy Spirit. So it's not a special group that you have to have a, a special <clears throat> invitation to join, that you have more knowledge than anybody else. John says that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and you're one. And you have this ability, you have this knowledge because of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Believers know the difference between truth and falsehood. Because for believers, truth is in a person. Truth is in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. 
And in Ephesians 4, it says the truth is in Jesus. The implication is that believers have a built-in spiritual instinct that enables them to detect error and refuse to go along with it. Any lie comes from the Antichrist. <coughs> some two decades, some 20, 20 years or so after John, his disciple, Polycarp, said this, Everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. And whoever <coughs> does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever perverts the words of the Lord to his own lust and says that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, he is Satan's firstborn. That's pretty clear too, isn't it? Polycarp was John's disciple. He was put to death as an old man because he refused to deny Jesus. Let me just read something very quickly. <clears throat> John says there are going to be many antichrists. There continue to be many antichrists mm -hmm. that deny Jesus has come in the flesh, that deny Jesus is the Son of God. About 30 years ago, John Piper, who was a pastor in Minnesota, got a uh, package in the mail. And the package contained tapes and um, books and some sermons preached by Sun Moon. And he says, we've gotten a bad deal. And we want a fair representation. So look at this and you'll see that we're Christians just like you are. And out of his book that he sent, Divine Principles, this is what it says on a couple of pages. This is Sun Moon talking, trying to tell John Piper that we're Christians. And we've just gotten a bad rap by people that are saying we're not. And again, this is from Moon. He says, <clears throat> I'm making a bold declaration. Jesus did not come to die. Jesus was murdered. The crucifixion of Jesus was a result of human faithlessness. The most egregious and destructive lack of faith was to be found in John the Baptist. This means that Jesus did not come to die on the cross. If Jesus came to die on the cross, would he not need a man to deliver him up? You know that Judas Iscariot is the disciple who betrayed Jesus. If Jesus fulfilled God's will with his death on the cross, then Judas should be glorified as the man who made the crucifixion possible. Judas would have been aiding God's dispensation. But Jesus said of Judas, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Furthermore, if God had wanted his son to be crucified, he did not need to wait 4,000 years to prepare the chosen people. And it goes on like this. 
talks about contradictory things in the Bible. He said in one place, God says one thing, and another place he says something else. And the reason he says what appears to be two different things is because, because God didn't know what people were going to do. And so he put in two things so that whichever way they go, it would line up with Scripture. I mean, absolutely absurd things that make no sense whatsoever. I am just revealing what I know to be the truth. The Lord cannot appear in that kind of supernatural fashion. As a man, he must come up from the bottom of human misery. He must come to the most miserable nation and lift the human status from the slave position to the servant position, to the adopted child position, and to the direct child position, and by physically putting together the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That is the mission of Matthias. And then he says God needs a perfected Adam and he needs a perfected Eve. And John says, children, it's the last hour. And you've heard that many antichrists have come. Therefore we know it's the last hour. There's more of the ramblings, but I'm not going to read it all. We need to understand that the same thing that happened here hasn't stopped. It continues on. There are many antichrists in the world today. And John's words are just as applicable now as they ever were. Verses 24 and, excuse me, 22 and 23. Who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You want a fundamental doctrinal test of someone who professes to be a Christian, asking him, asking his view of the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. If he denies the deity of Christ, he's not a Christian. If we claim to have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, John says we lie. If we say we know God, but disobey his commandments, John says we are liars. If we say that we know God, excuse me, if we deny that Jesus is the Christ, John says we are the liar. Mm -hmm. Because denying that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, that's, according to John, the arch lie, the chief lie, the great lie. Because the one behind the great lie is the Antichrist. And these words were aimed at the time against Serenthus. And Serenthus was the man that was a, um, a Jewish scholar from Alexandria in Egypt. And he taught that the Christ spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus at the cross. 
So he was a human being, but during a specific period of time, the Christ Spirit came on him, and then the Christ Spirit left him. And it did that because God would never stay in a man that was going to die. But it was an arch heretical movement at the time. And these particular people did not say that God, they didn't deny God. They denied Jesus, but they didn't deny God. But what John says is that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And the word confess means to say the same thing. So if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you confess the same thing that Jesus said. You're saying the same thing that Jesus said. Verses 24 and 25. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to me, to us, eternal life. Let, that which, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. The point is that the false teachers did not. What they heard from the beginning, they didn't let abide. They didn't let remain in them. At one time, they claimed to believe the true doctrine about Jesus, but then they departed from it. And the saints, the Christians, are, are warned, they're exhorted, they're urged to remain in the teaching that they were taught in the beginning. The word abide means remain, but it doesn't just mean stay where you where you were when you first learned it. It means grow and continue to grow. There's supposed to be a growth and a nurturing and a continuing to advance in the knowledge of God and never to stay in the same place. Because if this nurturing, this advancement, if this growing happens, it means that you're abiding <coughs> in the Father, and in the Son. What's the result of abiding in the Father and the Son? John says it's eternal life. Eternal life, the resurrection life, the life of the age to come. And 26 and 27 say, <clears throat> These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as he had taught you, you abide in him. The ones that have left are trying to deceive <coughs> the ones that stayed. They haven't succeeded, but they're trying. John is saying that the teaching of the apostles is not enough to keep them in the truth, but they've got another safeguard to go with what the apostles taught. 
And the other safeguard is the anointing which you receive from him. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables them to recognize the truth and to stand against falsehood. Verse 27, <clears throat> where it says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, has been distorted many, many times by people that don't know what they're talking about. It's certainly true that the Holy Spirit is your absolute and my absolute teacher that illuminates the Word of God for us. But that doesn't mean that we're independent of the teaching ministry of the church. What do we think John is doing in this whole letter if he's not teaching? What do you think all of Paul's letters are doing if they're not teaching us? It doesn't mean that you're a, a law unto yourself that you don't need to have anybody else say anything to you because you know it all, which is sadly what some people have taken. You can't tell me. I'm a Christian. I've got the Holy Spirit. I already know these things. Well, if that's so, then we don't need anybody to teach us, and we don't need Scripture to read because Scripture is teaching. Paul says... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Remember Peter and John were commanded by the Jewish leaders not to teach mm. in the name of Jesus? And what did they say? They said that they were going to obey God rather than man. And they continued day by day teaching and preaching Jesus. Paul says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all and to teach Patient when wrong. And, the, and, and Scripture says in Ephesians, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Teaching has to be provided by those that are in the fellowship. It has to be provided by those that have the Holy Spirit. These false teachers did not. That's why you don't listen to them. They don't have the anointing because they don't have the Spirit of God residing in them. And they don't have the Spirit of God residing in them because they deny the foundational truth. They're not Christians. No one outside the fellowship of Christ and the false teachers left the fellowship because they didn't believe the foundational teachings of Christ. They removed themselves. So they removed themselves from the fellowship. They are not able to give any true anointing teaching. This is why we don't listen to them. It's only within the fellowship of Christ that the Holy Spirit teaches believers. So there are two safeguards against error, the Word of God and the anointing of the Spirit. And both are necessary if we're going to continue in the truth. If you honor the Word and neglect the Spirit, then that's a mistake because only the Spirit can interpret the Word of God. Only the Spirit shines light on the Word of God so that we understand it. 
And if we think we are honoring the Spirit, but we neglect to read the Word of God, then that makes no sense because the Spirit teaches us from the Word of God. So either way is an error. It's the Word and the Spirit together. <clears throat> the only safeguard that we've got against lies is to abide, have the abiding lips, that which we have heard from the beginning, the truth that we've heard from the beginning, the teaching that you've heard when you first became a Christian and that you're growing in, and the anointing that we receive from him, the Holy Spirit that we receive from the Lord. That's how we abide in the truth, not by some new teaching that's come along that nobody's ever heard of before, that somebody that's suddenly come upon the scene has got some new revelation that's never been heard or seen in the church before. In verses 28 and 29. Okay. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. What's, this, what's Jesus, I mean, what's John saying? He's saying, be ready. We know that Jesus has come, and our hope is in his future coming. What, what could be a greater incentive holiness than knowing that Jesus is coming. John says, when he appears, it doesn't say if he appears, the coming is certain. The day of his coming is not. Be ready. John says, we may have confidence. And confidence means a cheerful courage, an assurance a boldness. It talks about the heart attitude of a Christian who walks so close to Jesus that there's nothing between him and Jesus when he comes again. Uh, I have to admit, I, I wanted to skip over this section because it's such a hard thing to even think about. Because a lot of people say that it's supposed to be for Christians like it was with Enoch. That Jesus comes back and he just takes you because you've been walking with him every day and he doesn't find any fault in you. That's um, definitely not me, sadly. <laughs> but that's what the goal is. That's what the aim is. To walk so close to Jesus that there's no difference. It's, it's just like a continuation. You take one step here and your next step in heaven with Jesus and it's just a seamless type of walk. That's, that's the goal. That's the aim. He talks about those that shrink away in shame at his coming. There's a lot of fearful scriptures 
about being ashamed when Jesus comes. You know, Jesus and speaks about those invited to the wedding feast. And then there were people that showed up at the wedding feast that were not wearing a wedding garment. And the scripture says they were cast into Adam's darkness. The only wedding garment that's acceptable when Jesus comes is the righteousness of Christ. To be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the wedding garment. There is no other. Anything else is unacceptable. Anything <laughs> else is the depart from me. You who do iniquity. The amplified reading of verse 28 is, And now, little children, be continually abiding in him in order that whenever he is made visible, we may have instant freedom of speech and not be made to shrink away from him in shame at his coming and personal presence. Verse 29, John is saying that if you know for a fact <coughs> that God is righteous, then you will know as a logical consequence that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Christ. If you know he's righteous and you practice righteousness, then you're going to know that you've been born again. Because why? Because the child exhibits the likeness of his father. A family resemblance. If you're like Jesus, you're going to resemble Jesus. It's like your children are like you. The Gnostics, these heretical people that claim you had to have a separate knowing in order to be initiated into God. They called their hidden knowledge a regeneration, a being born again. But John says it's not knowledge that causes you to be born again. Mm -hmm. John says it's righteousness. Mm -hmm. That's the mark of a person that's regenerate. That's the mark of a person that's been changed, a person that's been born again. And John says that this person that practices righteousness is born of God. And the Greek word born means a past completed action. Means a past completed action that continues on now. So being born again is a It's something that happens once, you never lose it. It's yours eternally. The relationship between God and believer, between father and child, is a permanent one. You're not born again today, you do something tomorrow, and you lose it. Because the hand of God doesn't move away from you. He knows who you are. He knows who you are from the beginning to the end. It's a forever relationship. 
And just one verse out of the next chapter, very briefly. 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. What John is doing here is saying, that's a love we don't understand. It's an unearthly love. We don't find any kind of love like this anywhere. It's a far, from a foreign country. It's so amazing. John is bursting into praise and adoration because see what great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Wow. I'm in awe. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like the, the clouds are separating and we can't, we can't understand it. It's so magnificent. It falls on his face in adoration. It's like God's love is so unearthly. Unearthly. And the word always conveys astonishment the way he's talking. It says, and such we are. Reminds us, when God calls us something, that's what we are. Mm -hmm. He calls us his children. That's it. No debate. Don't think about it anymore. He says you're his children. If God calls us something, that's exactly what it is. You don't argue about it. You don't say, but what about? No what about. God said it. Whatever he calls something is what it is. In his mind and his heart. And so that means it's settled. It's not something that's going to change. And he calls believers children of God. Settled. That's it. And additionally, the word has bestowed indicates that the gift is your permanent possession. So again and again, it's a permanency. It's something that will not change. We're children of God, not by nature, not because of something innate in us, because of the grace of God. And the grace of God does not change. The children of God and the world are so different from each other that John says, the world does not know us. Mm. And the reason that it doesn't know us is because it doesn't know God. If it doesn't know God, how can it know the children of God? Just like Christ's glory is veiled or was veiled by his flesh, so our life in <coughs> so our life is hid with Christ in God. That's what it says in Colossians. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Our sonship is real, but it's not yet apparent. It's not yet apparent because people don't know God. They've got no they don't have the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is not precious to them. Do you know what David Maybe it's not David, but in Psalm 119, what he says, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. 
Now, how many of us ever go around saying, you know, I, boy, I love God's law? Like what the psalmist says, I, how I love your law. Mm-hmm. Why, do we, why does he love his law? Why does he love his commandments? Because God's commandments reflect the character of God. That's who God is. When we say, oh, how I love your law, it's like saying, oh, God, oh, how I love you. Mm-hmm. Yes, Carol. Lord, I pray that your word truly would abide in us, that it would remain in us, and that there would be a constant yearning to know you more, a constant desire to draw closer (laughs) to you, that your face would shine upon us, that the light of your countenance would lift us up, and that Jesus would be the one that we love more than life, would watch over us and lead us in in your way, Lord. We ask it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.